Ah, book by book. Here we are once again sharing in some Bible study that we are inviting you to share in with us as we meet here. I'm Richard Buse. This is Paul Blackham, my colleague of, of many years. And then we're joined by our special guest today, Nancy Guthrie, author and Bible teacher from Nashville, Tennessee in the USA. Welcome and thank you for coming. Oh, you guys are so nice to let me come and talk through God's Word with you today. You've come a long, long way. And what we're doing, of course, we're here right in the Dockland area of London, England. And you can see to, over to one side here, the great dome that was created in about the year 2000. And also the little cable cars running along here. We're in Dockland area. And it's a joy to be here to share in. Listen, what we're doing is a study in the book of 1 Samuel. And join with us. Open it up, if you would, at the Bible and at chapter, well, we'll look at chapters 1 to 5, taking up the theme of the Lord is King. And I'm going to just uh, read a little bit from really the first chapter. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, it's a story, of course, of Elkanah and his wife Hannah in Shiloh in the Middle East. And uh, Hannah has had all sorts of problems around her. Uh, she's been dying for a little boy to be born. And she's prayed to the Lord about it. She met with Eli, the local priest, prayed. And finally, she's given her wish and her prayer is answered. And the boy is born, Samuel, which actually is like the Hebrew, heard by God. So why don't I read from, let's see, chapter 1, and I think verse 24 I'm going to start off at. After Samuel was weaned, Hannah took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and he was the priest, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord. That's Hannah's comment on all this wonderful thing that had happened for her. Let me ask, actually, straight away, Nancy, our guest here. I mean, why is it good for today's church to study 1 Samuel? I mean, what do you love best about this book, its key truths? Well, you know, there's so much we wouldn't understand about the kingdom of God that Jesus has invited us into. Mm -hmm. He came announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. He instructed us to pray, hallowed be thy name, uh, your kingdom come. Well, how would we even know what we're asking for in terms of the kingdom without these books exactly. that reveal to us the kingdom of God in shadow form? And of course, if we'd been reading along in the Bible, we would have read Judges right before this, mm -hmm. this very dark time. 200 years of chaos. So much darkness. I mean, once you get to the end of Judges, mm -hmm. you see just how evil this nation has become. And the book ends saying there is no king in Israel and therefore everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so you're left with this longing at the end of Judges for there to be a king who comes and rules over a kingdom in righteousness and faithfulness. We long for a good king who will come and bring peace in place of the chaos. And so we're going to discover in 1 Samuel that 
God in grace to his people is taking care of them and he in fact is going to give them a king. And so we discover uh, that the Lord is at work in his, 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 among his people. He's going to give them a king. And yet we're going to see he does it in an unusual way, not like the world does, but that the world, that, that God chooses to work through weak things to accomplish his purpose in his people. Oh, that's exactly so. And then that, with this theme of the Lord is king, then Hannah is then bursting into prayer in chapter two as you look on. And actually, what would you say is so good about Hannah's prayer, friends? Well, I, I love Hannah because she is a tough life situation that she, they can't have children. Her husband, instead of joining with her in praying to the Lord for mercy to send a child, he just goes and marries some other, like, another wife. And then that wife makes so, life so difficult for Hannah. So Hannah, her husband, doesn't, isn't satisfied with her. But he says to her, you've got to be satisfied with me. He doesn't sit with her. And she's getting aggro. But then she like, prays to the Lord. And she has a heart for the living God and she prays that the Lord would give this child. And Samuel's born and then she prays in chapter two and it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. And she's like that great theologian, Mary, in her prayer when she gives birth to Jesus and uh, heart rejoices in the Lord. And then she gives this prayer that's packed with theological truth. There is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you, no rock like our God. And then she talks about this way in which the values of the world are turned upside down. The proud are brought down, the strong are made to be weak and all this. And it comes to this fabulous conclusion right at the end of the prayer. He, God, will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Christ. And you think, well, hang on, there is, the, David's not arrived, Saul's not arrived, there isn't any kings. No, Hannah knows there is a king. And the, the people should, they, they said they not got a king. They did have a king, but they didn't recognize him anymore. There was the king. And Hannah's heart set on him, the king, the divine king. And that's what's so wonderful about Hannah. Everybody else around is kind of blind and stupid and messed up. But Hannah knows there is a king and she just trusts in him. And actually, some of those who were messed up around, well, among them, I'm afraid, was the priest Eli. Oh. He was a good man in a way, but a <laughs> bit weak. Then his sons, I mean, we find here, I suppose, a demoralized priesthood and alienated people following the judges, a silent God because there'd been no vision for a long, long time uh, from the Lord. And so... Why does the Bible show us this darker side, do you think, of Eli and his, and his sons? Well, we've seen in Judges there's no king in Israel. And mm. if we think that the priesthood is going to be the answer yeah. for the leadership of Israel to, to make them a holy nation, we get this picture right at the beginning that here is uh, the high priest Eli and he has these two sons and it's really rather heartbreaking. These are the people who are supposed to be leading the people of God to know and love the Lord. And we read in verse 12 of chapter 2 that Eli's sons who are serving in the temple are wicked men. They have no regard for the Lord. I mean, this should horrify us, right? Mm. That they're supposed to be leading the people. And we discover that, in fact, here is this means God has provided for his people to deal with their sin, which is to offer sacrifices. And these two sons have perverted it, yeah. right? They're coming to the temple as a way to purify themselves. 
And actually, we discover that these two priests are having sexual relations with people when they come mm. to the temple. Mm. And here's this means of animal sacrifice that's supposed to always be pointing to the one perfect sacrifice that is to come. And they're abusing that. They're sticking their fork in mm. the meat. Like, we'll let you burn off the fat, but we'll even take the raw meat so that we can eat it and enjoy it ourselves. And evidently, Eli is allowing this corruption of he's his weak, son yeah. to even corrupt him. We discover yeah. that he's very fat. Yeah. Well. Why is he fat? Yeah. I, I think it's perhaps because he's been eating yeah. of this meat that's actually supposed to be burned up in sacrifice to the Lord. We read in verse 17, they're treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And this is the environment that this young boy, Samuel, is growing up in. And yet we read he's growing up more significantly at the end of verse 21 in the presence of the Lord. Mm. I know. And you, when you think of these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're really a couple of self-serving spivs, <laughs> like yeah. we find in the book of Jude at the end of the Bible. Yeah. Those who are supposed to be holy before the Lord, but actually, no, they're self-serving entirely. Then comes Samuel himself. Now, let's just think about this. I mean, as we look at chapter 3, what do we learn about Samuel well, even as a boy from God's early call, it's a thrilling little story. I love it. I, mean, I he, love it. Yeah, because even in chapter 2, verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with his people. And with people, Sounds familiar. That sounds familiar, <laughs> doesn't it? That's what's said about Jesus. So you, as soon as you read those verses and you've read the Gospels, you're like, oh, he's a bit like Jesus. And you go, yeah, he is. And, it, and right when we get into chapter three, verse three, I love that where it just goes, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And, and I think there's that sense of you, when you've read all this, you think, oh, there's no hope. There's no light. No, and the Lord's like, no, no, it's not going that. And here's little Samuel. And he's sleeps and sleeping peacefully in the presence of the ark of God. Why that's important is when the Philistines get the Ark of God, they're petrified of it and they're not comfortable at all around the Lord. Uh, and other people aren't. Like when we read on, they're like, oh, the Lord, we co we're not comfortable with him. Samuel is. He loves the Lord. And he's, he's, he's only, well, I think it's uh, Josephus, the Jewish theolo uh, theologian or historian, who says that he was 12 years old. Well, there he is 12 years old if he was sleeping there by the Ark. And uh, actually, I learned this story when, from my mum when I was about four. Yeah. And she'd say it in this sort of voice. She'd say, she heard a little voice saying, Samuel, <laughs> Samuel. And then, of course, she gets up and, and Eli says, no, no, it wasn't me. No, no, not at all. And then comes, of course, the, the, the great prophecy that it follows on. Yes, indeed. And isn't it wonderful that the answer to all of this darkness yes. and perversion in the temple amongst the people is God giving us his word. Mm. God is going yeah. to speak into this. Yeah. And, and we read there in verse 19 that Samuel, as he grew up, the Lord was with him. Let none of his words fall to the ground. Yeah. So the answer to the darkness of this world is the light that comes yeah. in God's word as he chooses to reveal himself and speak to his people. Yeah, yeah indeed. And how wonderful, because it says in verse 1, in those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. There had not been anything in the time of the judges, very little. Suddenly, a prophet is born, and that is most wonderful to read about. So, as we'll actually look on at chapter 4 now, there's this battle about the Ark of the Covenant um, between the Philistines and the Israelites. And it seems that the Israelites are thinking, yes, if we've, if we've got the Ark, we'll be okay. No, they're defeated. And what about the Philistines? They're a bit frightened. What is it... 
about the Philistines, did they appreciate the ark more than the Israelites actually in chapter 4? Or why didn't the ark give the Israelites victory when they did have it? Well, I think the key is here in verse 3, because they're going to battle with the Philistines. And look, they say, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. I think they've forgotten that the Lord himself has always promised to go before them in battle. I mean, haven't we seen that before in Joshua? Mm -hmm. As they're going, the Lord is going before them in battle. I think they've forgotten it. And they're, they're going to use the ark kind of like, let's use it like a lucky charm. Mm -hmm. Let's use this like God's power that it's going to help us. So I tend to think it, it hasn't worked because they're not truly trusting in the Lord uh -huh. to go before them in battle. They've forgotten the battle is the Lord's. Mm -hmm. Instead, they're trying to figure out how to use God for their own purposes. And therefore, it really fails them. But of course, then here is this ark that does represent the presence of the Lord, and it gets amongst Philistines. So here they are, and it, they have the ark that represents the power of God, and it's taken into the land of the Philistines. And of course, there, it's mm -hmm. among the people who are God's enemies, and it wreaks havoc on them. Yeah, of course. And what we read about, of course, further on is that the defeat of the Israelites, all this about the ark, the death of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Eli dies when, the, when he's brought the message that the ark, not only have the Israelites been defeated, but the ark's been taken again by the Philistines. That finishes him off. And I'd like to ask this question. What made the Philistines put the ark in the temple of Dagon? Yeah, it's good because I think they thought... This is chapter 5. It's in chapter 5, and they probably thought, wow, we've beaten them now, and so Dagon's beaten the Lord God. So let's take this ark and let's put it like a sort of stag's head on the wall in a hunter's lodge. Let's have that up on the wall, and then Dagon can go, see, here's one of the gods I defeated, the Lord God. And then, of course, like overnight, Dagon, they come back and Dagon's worshipping the Lord God. And then the next day, again, it's even more so, and his hands are off and his hands are... And then the, the, the priests of Dagon should have said, OK, let's worship the Lord then. He's real. But instead they go... Um, oh, let's just jump over the threshold of our temple in future. But it also, I love that verse. It's in Psalm 97, verse 7. All who worship images are put to shame, those who boast in idols. And then it says, worship him, all you gods. Even the gods must worship the Lord God, and Dagon does. He has to bow down. There's this wonderful bit from the commentary by Dale Ralph Davis on 1 Samuel, where he says this... Uh, now Dagon bows before Yahweh. Yeah. The masterstroke is in the next line, and I think the writer probably had tongue-in-cheek, twinkly in eye, and acid in ink when he wrote most matter-of-factly, so they took Dagon and put him back in his place after he'd collapsed. It doesn't sound like a punchline, says Dale Ralph Davis, but imagine a god, and they have to stand him back up. <laughs> what kind of a god is that? Yeah. It became worse. Next morning, Dagon's head and hands come off when he tried to bow before Yahweh's ark. Well, again, that simply puts the point very, very clearly indeed. Yeah, it, doesn't it show us that, in a sense, God doesn't need us yeah. to, to fight our battles? I mean, his, the ark can be there, and, it, and the enemy's head gets chopped off, yeah. right? Yeah. It's not by sword no. or by strength, 
but by the power of God. Indeed. And a 12-year-old can be used by God. So a 12-year-old goes to sleep as a pupil, opens the doors next day of the temple, but he wakes up as a prophet. And uh, actually, as the Scottish preacher, I've got a quote from him, George Matheson of the 19th century. He once declared that however grown up we are, it's by the survival of our childhood, he said, that we see the kingdom of God. Lose that, and we've lost everything that's of great worth in our lives, including, it seems, the lamp of God itself. Hey, come back another time. We're going to do some more on the first book of Samuel. God bless you today. <laughs>